Chapter forty three of the Old Curiosity Shop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Curiosity Shop by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty three. Her momentary weakness passed. The child again summoned the resolution which had until now sustained her, and endeavouring to keep steadily in her view the one idea that they were flying from disgrace and crime, and that her grandfather's preservation must depend solely upon her firmness, unaided by one word of advice or any helping hand, urged him onward and looked back no more. While he, subdued and abashed, seemed to crouch before her, and to shrink and cower down as if in the presence of some superior creature. The child herself was sensible of a new feeling within her, which elevated her nature, and inspired her with an energy and confidence she had never known. There was no divided responsibility now. The whole burden of their two lives had fallen upon her, and henceforth she must think and act for both. I have saved him, she thought. In all dangers and distresses, I will remember that. At any other time, the recollection of having deserted the friend who had shown them so much homely kindness, without a word of justification, the thought that they were guilty in appearance of treachery and ingratitude, even the having parted from the two sisters, would have filled her with sorrow and regret. But now, all other considerations were lost in the new uncertainties and anxieties of their wild and wandering life, and the very desperation of their condition roused and stimulated her. In the pale moonlight, which lent a wanness of its own, the delicate face where thoughtful care already mingled with the winning grace and loveliness of youth, the too bright eye, the spiritual head, the lips that pressed each other with such high resolve and courage of the heart, the slight figure, firm in its bearing and yet so very weak, told their silent tale, but told it only to the wind that rustled by, which, taking up its burden, carried, perhaps to some mother's pillow, faint dreams of childhood fading in its bloom, and resting in the sleep that knows no waking. The night crept on apace, the moon went down, the stars grew pale and dim, and morning called as they slowly approached. Then, from behind a distant hill, the noble sun rose up, driving the mists in phantom shapes before it, and clearing the earth of their ghostly forms till darkness came again. When it had climbed higher into the sky, and there was warmth in its cheerful beams, they laid them down to sleep, upon a bank, hard by some water. But Nell retained her grasp upon the old man's arm, and long after he was slumbering soundly watched him with untiring eyes. Fatigue stole over her at last. Her grasp relaxed, tightened, relaxed again, and they slept side by side. A confused sound of voices mingling with her dreams, awoke her. 
a man of a very uncouth and rough appearance was standing over them, and two of his companions were looking on from a long heavy boat, which had come close to the bank while they were sleeping. The boat had neither oar nor sail, but was towed by a couple of horses, who, with the rope to which they were harnessed slack and dripping in the water, were resting on the path. Hello, said the man roughly. "'What's the matter here, eh?' "'We were only asleep, sir,' said Nell. "'We have been walking all night.' "'A pair of queer travellers to be walking all night,' "'observed the man who had first accosted them. "'One of you is a trifle too old for that sort of work, "'and the other a trifle too young. "'Where are you going?' "'Nell faltered and pointed at hazard towards the west.' upon which the man inquired if she meant a certain town which he named. Nell, to avoid further questioning, said, Yes, that was the place. Where have you come from? was the next question. And this being an easier one to answer, Nell mentioned the name of the village in which their friend the schoolmaster dwelt, as being less likely to be known to the men, or to provoke further inquiry. "'I thought somebody had been robbing and ill-using you might be,' said the man. "'That's all. Good day.' Returning his salute and feeling greatly relieved by his departure, Nell looked after him as he mounted one of the horses, and the boat went on. It had not gone very far when it stopped again, and she saw the man beckoning to her. "'Did you call to me?' said Nell, running up to them. "'You may go with us if you like.' replied one of those in the boat. We are going to the same place. The child hesitated for a moment, and, thinking, as she had thought with great trepidation more than once before, that the men whom she had seen with her grandfather might perhaps, in their eagerness for the booty, follow them, and regaining their influence over them, set hers at naught. And that if they went with these men, all traces of them must surely be lost at that spot, determined to accept the offer. The boat came close to the bank again, and before she had had any time for further consideration, she and her grandfather were on board, and gliding smoothly down the canal. The sun shone pleasantly upon the bright water, which was sometimes shaded by trees, and sometimes open to a wide extent of country, intersected by running streams, and rich with wooden hills, cultivated land, and sheltered farms. Now and then a village with its modest spire, thatched roofs, and gable ends would peep out from among the trees, and more than once a distant town with great church towers looming through its smoke, and high factories or workshops, rising above the mass of houses, would come in view, and— by the length of time it lingered in the distance, show them how slowly they travelled. Their way lay for the most part through the low grounds and open plains, and except these distant places, and occasionally some men working in the fields, or lounging on the bridges under which they passed, to see them creep along, nothing encroached on their monotonous and secluded track. Nell was rather disheartened when they stopped at a kind of wharf late in the afternoon to learn from one of the men that they would not reach their place of destination until next day, 
and that if she had no provision with her, she had better bide there. She had but a few pence, having already bargained with them for some bread, but even of these it was necessary to be very careful, as they were on their way to an utterly strange place, with no resource whatever. A small loaf and a morsel of cheese, therefore, were all she could afford, and with these she took her place in the boat again, and after half an hour's delay, during which the men were drinking at the public house, proceeded on the journey. They brought some beer and spirits into the boat with them, and what with drinking freely before, and again now, were soon on a fair way of being quarrelsome and intoxicated. Avoiding the small cabin, therefore, which was very dark and filthy, and to which they often invited both her and her grandfather, Nell sat in the open air with the old man by her side, listening to their boisterous hosts with a palpitating heart, and almost wishing herself safe on shore again, though she should have to walk all night. They were in truth very ragged, noisy fellows, and quite brutal among themselves, though civil enough to their two passengers. Thus, when a quarrel arose between the man who was steering and his friend in the cabin, upon the question who had first suggested the propriety of offering Nelson beer, and when the quarrel led to a scuffle in which they beat each other fearfully, to her inexpressible terror, neither visited his displeasure upon her, but each contented himself with venting it on his adversary, on whom, in addition to blows, he bestowed a variety of compliments which, happily for the child, were conveyed in terms to her quite unintelligible. The difference was finally adjusted by the man who had come out of the cabin knocking the other into it head first, and taking the helm into his own hands, without evincing the least discomposure himself, or causing any in his friend who, being of a tolerably strong constitution and perfectly inured to such trifles, went to sleep as he was, with his heels upwards, and in a couple of minutes or so was snoring comfortably. By this time it was night again, and though the child felt cold, being but poorly clad, her anxious thoughts were far removed from her own suffering or uneasiness, and busily engaged in endeavouring to devise some scheme for their joint subsistence. The same spirit which had supported her on the previous night upheld and sustained her now. Her grandfather lay sleeping safely at her side, and the crime to which his madness urged him was not committed. That was her comfort. How every circumstance of her short, eventful life came thronging into her mind as they travelled on. Slight incidents, never thought of or remembered until now, faces seen once and ever since forgotten, words spoken and scarcely heeded at the time, scenes of a year ago and those of yesterday mixing up and linking themselves together, familiar places shaping themselves out in the darkness from things which, when approached, were of all others the most remote and most unlike them. Sometimes a strange confusion in her mind relative to the occasion of her being there, and the place to which she was going, and the people she was with, and imagination suggesting remarks and questions which sounded so plainly in her ears that she would start, 
and turn, and be almost tempted to reply. All the fancies and contradictions common in watching an excitement and restless change of place beset the child. She happened, while she was thus engaged, to encounter the face of the man on deck, in whom the sentimental stage of drunkenness had now succeeded to the boisterous, and who, taking from his mouth a short pipe, quilted it over with string for its longer preservation, requested that she would oblige him with a song. "'You've got a very pretty voice, a very soft eye, and a very strong memory,' said this gentleman. "'The voice and eye I've got evidence for, and the memory's an opinion of my own. And I'm never wrong. Let me hear a song this minute.' "'I don't think I know one, sir,' returned Nell. "'You know forty-seven songs,' said the man with a gravity which admitted of no alteration on the subject. "'Forty-seven's your number. Let me hear one of them the best. Give me a song this minute.' Not knowing what might be the consequences of irritating her friend, and trembling with the fear of doing so, Poor Nell sang him some little ditty which she had learned in happier times, and which was so agreeable to his ear, that on its conclusion he in the same peremptory manner requested to be favoured with another, to which he was so obliging as to roar a chorus to no particular tune, and with no words at all, but which amply made up in its amazing energy for its deficiency in other respects. The noise of this vocal performance awakened the other man, who, staggering upon deck and shaking his late opponent by the hand, swore that singing was his pride and joy and chief delight, and that he desired no better entertainment. With a third call, more imperative than either of the two former, Nell felt obliged to comply, and this time a chorus was maintained not only by the two men together, but also by the third man on horseback, who, being by his position debarred from a nearer participation in the revels of the night, roared when his companions roared, and rent the very air. In this way, with little cessation, and singing the same songs again and again, the tired and exhausted child kept them in good humour all that night. And many a cottager, who was roused from his soundest sleep by the discordant chorus as it floated away upon the wind, hid his head beneath the bedclothes and trembled at the sounds. At length the morning dawned. It was no sooner light than it began to rain heavily. As the child could not endure the intolerable vapours of the cabin, they covered her, in return for her exertions, with some pieces of sail-cloth, and ends of tarpaulin, which sufficed to keep her tolerably dry and to shelter her grandfather besides. As the day advanced, the rain increased. At noon it poured down more hopelessly and heavily than ever, without the faintest promise of abatement. They had for some time been gradually approaching the place for which they were bound. The water had become thicker and dirtier. Other barges coming from it passed them frequently. The paths of coal ash and huts of staring brick marked the vicinity of some great manufacturing town. While scattered streets and houses and smoke from distant furnaces indicated that they were already in the outskirts. 
Now, the clustered roofs and piles of buildings trembling with the working of engines, and dimly resounding with their shrieks and throbbings, the tall chimneys vomiting forth a black vapour, which hung in a dense ill-favoured cloud above the house-tops and filled the air with gloom, the clank of hammers beating upon iron, the roar of busy streets and noisy crowds gradually augmenting until all the various sounds blended into one and none was distinguishable for itself, announced the termination of their journey. The boat floated into the wharf to which it belonged. The men were occupied directly. The child and her grandfather, after waiting in vain to thank them, or ask them whether they should go, passed through a dirty lane into a crowded street, and stood amid its din and tumult, and in the pouring rain, a strange, bewildered, and confused, as if they had lived a thousand years before, and were raised from the dead and placed there by a miracle. End of chapter 43